Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The PMO, SNC-Lavalin, Justin Trudeau, Jody Wilson-Raybould questions are gaining momentum and national traction. The leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Andrew Scheer, joined me to talk about that. Our Justin Trudeau's treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould and his changing claims being received by the Indigenous community. I spoke with Calvin Helene, son of a B.C. hereditary chief, lawyer, author, and president and CEO of the Eagle Group of Companies. Have a listen to what Calvin Helene had to say. 11-year-old Rhea Rajkumar was murdered on her birthday on Valentine's Day, and her 41-year-old father is facing a first-degree murder charge. Joe Warmington joined me from the Toronto Sun. It is dubbed the United We Roll official convoy for Canada. It began in Red Deer, and the ultimate destination is Ottawa to protest what's happening to the energy sector and other issues that are disturbing to Canadians. I spoke with the convoy organizer, Glenn Carrot, and uh, Mark Friesen, who also assisted in organizing the convoy. They joined me from their trucks on the road across Canada. We have the PMO, SNC, Lavalin, Justin Trudeau, Jody Wilson, Raypole, questions gaining momentum and traction across Canada. And the Conservative Party of Canada leader, Andrew Scheer, joins us to provide his perspective and his party's perspective. Mr. Scheer, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So what do you make of this week, this last week, with Mr. Trudeau uh, making different contradicting statements where where do we stand with this particular case from your and your party's perspective uh well we uh, we are certainly no better off this week there's no clear no, no more clarity this week than we were uh when this uh, story broke when the very serious allegations about political interference in a criminal proceedings uh were, were first raised uh we, we we're no further ahead because the message from justin trudeau has changed four or five times now. Uh, now he's blaming the departure of, uh, of Scott Bryson on the force, you know, forcing him to fire his attorney general. I, I don't believe anyone's buying that. Uh, this is all set against the backdrop of our attempts in the, uh, in the House of Commons Justice Committee to get some answers. So I think there's only one conclusion here. When you have uh, Prime Minister changing his message every day, when you have uh, the, the, the voting down of, 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 of attempts to call witnesses that know what was going on. Uh, I think the only conclusion that we can draw is that something is being hidden. There's some detail, some aspect of the story that Justin Trudeau does not want to come out, and he's going to great lengths to, to make sure that happens. The objective here has to be that we hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould, correct? Well, you're absolutely right, and one of the things that's frustrating for me uh, personally, but I, I, you know, I, I get the same sense from, from Canadians that I speak to on this issue, is that uh, it's very bizarre, it's very odd 
to have Justin Trudeau speaking for Miss Wilson Raybould. Uh, you know, he's asking us to take her word for it. He's telling us what she said or how she has framed things. I, quite frankly, am tired of hearing from Justin Trudeau on this. I'd like to hear from her. And I think most Canadians would on this very important issue. And Justin Trudeau has the ability to ensure that happens by waiving his attorney-client privilege that, that whatever he, he may, thinks he may be protected from on this uh, and, and authorizing Ms. Wilson-Raybould to speak uh, to clarify what happened and to offer her side of the stories. What do you suspect took place between the PMO and uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould? Do you have any doubt the PMO and perhaps Mr. Trudeau directly pressured the former attorney general given what's gone on over the last week uh, plus? I, I, I believe that there was some level of, of, of interference, that there was some kind of pressure. Uh, we, the, the proof points are there. You know, First of all, we, we know that the Liberals made the change to legislation as to what happens to companies that are convicted of these uh, types of crimes. They snuck it in in a, an omnibus bill without really giving it any uh, due diligence or scrutiny. Uh, then we know that SNC-Lavalin asked for that very provision. We then know that the Director of Public Prosecutions, an independent person who uh, is tasked with deciding how to uh, prosecute these things, this determined that SNC-Lavalin did not qualify for this new thing that the Liberals had, had, had given uh, them. Uh, and then we know that she was shuffled out of her job and that she posted this statement back in, uh, in January where she, she talked about speaking truth to power and preserving the independence of the Attorney General and the office, and then we have this, the allegation. So to me, uh, there's certainly a heck of a lot of smoke here, uh, and I do believe there's there's a fire, and I do believe that at some level, uh, pressure was made, signals were sent, statements were made that led Ms. Wilson-Raybould to believe that she would face consequences if she did not do the Prime Minister's bidding, and that's a very, very serious situation. Now, on Tuesday, Mr. Trudeau held a one-way caucus meeting by phone. His MPs were not invited or permitted to speak and or ask questions. What do you make of that? And have you ever held one of those? Uh, no, I mean, that's, that's never a good sign when, when you have to do that. I mean, we have our caucus meetings uh, with, with dynamic uh, conversations. People uh, get up at the microphones, give me advice, feedback uh, all the time. That's how our normal meetings go. To have a one-way call where, uh, again, he's just asking, he's not answering questions, he's just presenting his statement and asking people to take his word for it. Um, th this whole thing, I, I would put it to you and, and, and to your listeners this way. If Justin Trudeau has done nothing wrong, if he doesn't have any reason to be concerned, he should be the one calling for this transparency. He should be the one welcoming a committee investigation. He's the, he should be the one that would be offering people in his office to go and testify to clear the air. Uh, the fact that he's going to such great lengths to prevent that from happening uh, to, to me, is is the signal that there's something going on here. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And when you look at the the Parliamentary Justice Committee and what happened a couple of days ago with that committee, is their work of any any real value now? Well, uh, not the way the Liberals uh, uh, stage managed it. The motion that Conservatives put forward in conjunction with the NDP, we had agreements from both opposition parties, uh, was all about allowing the officials that met with SNC-Lavalin, the, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff and his Principal Secretary, they were lobbied collectively with people in his office 50 times by SNC-Lavalin. We wanted to hear from them, give them an opportunity to explain what was discussed, were any commitments made, what did they then do with that information. Uh, the, the Liberals voted that down. They have now created a process where we're only allowed to hear from three people, none of whom were in those meetings. 
you know, the, 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 the people the liberals are bringing towards committee uh, don't have actual any actual information about what went on or what type of communication was made between Ms. Wilson-Raybould's office and the Prime Minister's office. So I, I think what we saw there was an attempt to muddy the waters, um, you know, get that to the realm of, you know, inside baseball and, and, and parliamentary minutiae and, and procedural things. The key point that people have to remember is that these allegations are that Justin Trudeau or someone in his office made it known to Ms. Wilson-Raybould that if she did not overrule an independent director of public prosecutions, did not provide SNC-Lavalin with a deal uh, on their very serious criminal charges, that she would face consequences. That is political interference of the sort that we do not tolerate here in Canada. We right now have a situation where we're telling the government of China uh, that we can't help, we, we, we can't make charges go away against a Huawei executive, and Canadians in China are being detained. And so on the one hand, we're saying we're the, we're the country that believes in the rule of law and that we can't have political interference. But when it's a well-connected firm with political ties and with the right government lobbyists, well, then, you know, we will cut special deals. Yeah. So the Liberals have, have really undermined the integrity of our justice system. And we, have, we, we need to remember that as this thing goes forward, because I do suspect they're going to try other tactics uh, to distract from that core central issue. Okay, I have two more questions for you. Is it your sense that Mr. Trudeau memorizes certain positions he's going to take in public? There are examples of him stopping in mid-sentence and declaring he needs to reset. I'm not quite sure what that's about, but you, you're, you're opposite him in question period uh, weekly. Do you have a sense that he memorizes positions and really can't extend beyond what he's memorized? I, I do absolutely get that sense. It's it's almost as if he's memorized a script, and that uh, you know, just like a an actor in a play needs to be prompted sometimes. You know, you hear them say line, uh, and then they have to sometimes go back to the previous uh, part of the the, the the verse that they were they had memorized. Uh, it's, and it's quite clear that this has happened several times where when he's he's dealt when he's presented with a question that that throws him off message, he has to go back and start again. To me, that's a sign that he, either one of two things, you know, he doesn't have a good grasp of the file that, that, that he's, he's been asked to, to speak about, or that he's so uh, concerned with, because he does have something to hide, that he has to stick to the line. Because when you don't stick to the line, if you say something different, uh, if it's not based on the truth, then you might say something that is proven to be false later on. And I, I think that's what we're seeing here. He's so incredibly scripted. His first press conference after these allegations were brought to light, he just kept repeating that he didn't direct Miss Wilson-Raybould. Well, then he was asked if he might have exerted pressure, if someone in his office might have uh, tried to influence, and he just kept going right back to the exact same line that he had memorized. So, uh, to me, that, that's what we're seeing here, and it doesn't inspire very much confidence in me that the Prime Minister of Canada uh, operates that way. All right, Mr. Shearer, thank you very much for the time. Good talking to you. Thank you very much, Roy. Uh, Andrew Shear, the uh, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, joining us on the Roy Green Show. Joining us on the program is Calvin Helene, son of a British Columbia hereditary chief. He's a lawyer, he's top 40 under 40 in Canada, author of remarkable books, Dances with Dependency, was the first one, and I remember speaking with Mr. Helene at that time, probably 10 years ago, and was just so absolutely uh, blown away with what he explained to us and how he talked about dependencies. He's a 
absolutely world-class public speaker, entrepreneur, president and CEO of the Eagle Group of companies, including the Eagle Spirit Pipeline, which we've spoken about, $16 billion effort, which really should go forward. Um, and uh, the objective is to really push the government to get going on pipelines in Canada so we're not importing. So ridiculous. On one coast, we're stopping uh, pipelines. On the other coast, we're bringing 800,000 barrels a day of oil, foreign oil, into this country. 800,000 a day. But as far as the issue is concerned, the treatment of Jody Wilson-Braybolt, uh, indigenous attorney general, former minister of justice by the current government. Let's talk to uh, Mr. Helene, the son of a B.C. hereditary chief. Calvin, thank you very much for the time. I've always enjoyed speaking with you. What was your personal reaction? What's your personal reaction been to what's been going on since the Globe and Mail story broke? Uh, thank you, uh, Roy. Um, like most Canadians, um, I think my reaction to, quote, Jody, unquote, uh, responses from the from the Prime Minister and and the actions of his his government is to uh, to be pretty much completely flabbergasted that um, such inane comments could uh, come out of uh, a group of people who've held themselves above everybody else, um, built their house on uh, on the cards of uh, sunny ways, openness and transparency, indigenous reconciliation, feminism, all of those things which uh, most ordinary Canadians have have uh, had fingers wagged in their faces about um, all seem to uh, take a back seat when uh, when it comes to um, uh, basically uh, dealing with uh, Quebec and dealing with uh, something that threatens the the uh, prime minister and um, it really really removes the curtain of uh, or the veneer of um, of all of these pretensions and shows what what uh, this government is really like I mean you know the the last week or so has been the gang that couldn't shoot straight we've heard about dozens of different versions from different uh, government people on on what happened when it happened who said what and um, I, uh, my dad, in addition to being a hereditary chief, was a commercial fisherman, and he came from a different generation. And when we were we were little kids, we would play cards with him, and we would pretend to cheat. We wouldn't we weren't actually cheating, but we liked to see the reaction from him. And he would just stop playing because he said his idea was that if you're going to cheat, then there's no point in going forward. And I think um, there's been a an inappropriate lack of uh, dignity in, in this whole thing with Jody and an inappropriate lack of honesty. Um, you know, the, the way that, uh, that the Justice Committee and all the different arms of government have been contorting themselves to uh, basically deny uh, coming to the, uh, the um, situation where we would have the truth. Um, the way I think about all of this is the same way that I thought about um, uh, about what's going on in the U.S. with Trump and and all of the all of the people that are being interviewed, and some of them have been jailed, 
relation to um, Russia interfering in their election. Um, if uh, there's nothing to hide, all of these people should have no problem going before whatever body it is under oath and telling the truth. And um, th- that's not so hard. <laughs> it should be a pretty straightforward exercise. You know, and, we're, we're, uh, at a, we're at a situation now with the situation in Canada with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. We're at a situation now where there's nothing else that's acceptable. We need to hear from her. We need to know what the truth of the situation is. And I suggested to a caller earlier, Calvin, that Mr. Trudeau has really pointed out that he is at polar opposites with Ms. Wilson-Raybould by the things he said about her, by the, the, the contradictions that he's issued. One day he says one thing, another day he says another thing, a third day he says a, a third thing. He has pointed out that if I believe that if she speaks, if she comes forward and she has the legal freedom to explain, in her words, what took place, there's no way the two sides are going to be able to agree on or say there was any agreement between them. This looks like it it just blew up because well, she stood because she stood her ground. Well, she comes from um, a very good family. My my um, grandmother was very good friends with, I believe, would be her grandmother. And, um, and um, principle is uh, a very important thing. You know, another one of the major uh, cards that uh, this government has been wagging its finger at uh, internationally is uh, this the idea of the rule of law. Um, and, um, you know, there was an article, I, um, a headline I just caught the other day, that the, the, the rule of law doesn't mean that much when it comes between uh, the prime minister and votes in Quebec. Um, the way that this whole thing has been distorted, and, you know, I've heard various pundits talk about um, SNC-Lavalin too, being too big to fail and all of this kind of thing, well... Do we have the rule of law or not? As this uh, government has pointed out several times in the past, um, we are a a nation supposedly of the rule of law, but uh, why is it being contorted now to suit the purposes uh, of of the government in this particular case? Um, Coming from from Western Canada, where... um, we have uh, a natural resources industry in northern Canada, which uh, represents about 20% of the GDP. Energy is about 10 or 11% of that. And to see the policies that are being passed by this government, that is pretty much um, completely damaging the economy of western and northern Canada. And uh, if, people in, if people don't understand this in Eastern Canada, they just need to see what these unemployed business people and truckers are doing driving this convoy to, to Ottawa. It's costing them a lot of money, taking a lot of their time. Um, but the economy has literally been wiped out. People do not understand the depth of alienation that's taking place in Western Canada as a block and and in northern canada um the the policies that have been put forward 
to essentially squash what has been an essential part of our economy, at least 20% of our GDP. And, and so Westerners and Northerners look at this, these uh, contortions being made for a company out of Quebec, um, the, the um, cow towing made to the manufacturing sector, which is an important sector, but that's 13% of the economy. And to be doing this at a time when real estate is 20% of our economy and that's contracting, it all will eventually spell serious economic problems for Canada at a time when the government is spending a lot of money and incurring a lot of debt. And um, Calvin, let me take a let me take a quick break. We'll come back and talk to some more. Calvin Helene is my guest. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I mean, she upholds integrity and dignity and the rule of law, and she gets kicked in the teeth and moved down to Veterans Affairs, as important as that is. Reality is it's the armpit near the armpit of the cabinet. Indian Affairs is the armpit of the cabinet. She's got to pass through two time zones now to get to the Prime Minister. Low budgets, low Treasury Board, low everything. And I'm quite surprised. I would have expected that. Had I been her, I would have resigned as soon as that demotion took place. And that was a bloody insult to her and Indians, I think, across the country. There's Bill Wilson, Jody Wilson-Raybould's dad, calling it a bloody insult that took place. Calvin Helene is uh, with us, Indigenous Canadian or Indigenous member of the of our North American society. I, I guess that's the way, the best way to describe, to, to, to say it, isn't it, Calvin? I mean, have um, we, are, we, are we a North American society? Have we, have we, have we morphed? To, have we accomplished this yet? Um, I, I don't think so. <laughs> <There's> a, <laughs> Probably not. A, well, you know, I, I was just reading um, uh, a, um, an article where our prime minister said he's a, he's a Quebecer before he's a Canadian. And when you put up those kinds of um, walls and they're coming from the top, um, it's understandable that people in other parts of the country get their backs up. So your sense, um, you're, you're, you're stating that the Prime Minister of Canada made a choice, and his choice was to, to select to represent the interests of a Quebec company over, the, over standing with his Attorney General. Well, not just that. It was, it's also standing on the principle of everything that they supposedly stand for, uh, openness and transparency, mm-hmm. women's rights, feminism, reconciliation. Uh, everything was thrown under the bus. And uh, one of the funny things that Mark Twain said is honesty is the best policy when there's, uh, when there's money in it. Um, if I were to... Uh, to paraphrase that from the point of view of this government, dishonesty is the best policy when there's political gain in it. So what happens um, now, what, what impact will this have on the relationship with the indigenous community in Canada and this government, which has talked a great deal about and promised a great deal 
as far as reconciliation is concerned? What's the impact? Well, I think the impact has been across the media and in newspapers and television and social media is that um, the First Nations people are, are have seen this to be uh, another uh, big promise that uh, that has held up uh, to to nothing once uh, once the chips are down. I mean, was it a surprise? Was it has what's been going on since the Global Mail story broke? Has it surprised you? Has it surprised the Indigenous community? Was there uh, a belief that things would be different, uh, would be more engaged and involved with this government? Um, I think when when uh, the election took place, I believe it was in 2015, all Indigenous people uh, had the same hopes uh, about looking forward to um, a different way of doing things and, and a, a way of of addressing all of these outstanding issues with the indigenous population across the country, this whole idea of reconciliation, and um, and um, the you know the moment the the heat is turned up, all that seems to have gone out the window, and people are seeing it for what it is. It it's uh, it's a uh, veneer that was uh, designed to. Um, it looks like now garner uh, votes, and um, and there was uh, very little action behind it. Do you think you're, you're a politically astute individual? Is there a political price to be paid here by the Trudeau government? I guess that that is a, uh, a decision each Canadian has to make. But um, uh, I am hearing from a lot of women who voted for. Um, for Trudeau was a big part of uh, him getting elected and seeing the uh, lack of uh, of <laughs> of uh, basic uh, uh, feminism from somebody who's declared himself to be uh, the uh, greater feminist than everybody else. Um, we've uh, seen a, a lack of openness and transparency. Um, we've seen a government that. Um, does a lot of preaching to people, and um, and when the the tables are turned, um, they abandon those principles, and I think there will be a price paid. Okay, so uh, and we have just a few seconds here. Mr. Trudeau had a choice; he chose Quebec, is what you're saying. He chose Quebec, um, and he and uh, they cho- they chose to try to cover their butts rather than stand by all of these things that uh, got them elected. Calvin, thank you for the time. It's always good talking to you. Okay, thank you very much. All the best. Calvin Helene on The Roy Green Show. February 14th, Valentine's Day. 11th birthday of uh, Rhea Rajkumar. And um, she lost her life. Life was stolen from her and her father is going to be facing or is already facing first-degree murder charges, so police inform us. There was an Amber Alert that went out quite late in the evening, and uh, there were actually people who were complaining that the Amber Alert had disturbed their sleep, that it was going on way too long, and why were they disturbed and why were they disrupted. It's, that's, that's awful in and of itself. My friend Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun has written a really uh, a marvelous column, and you're so good at that, Joe. It, 
You touch people's hearts with what you write, and the, the headline is Brampton Girl's Life Stolen on Her 11th Birthday, and your heart starts to ache just reading those words, and then you continue. And I saw it very early this morning. You were kind enough to uh, to send me uh, the column, and I, I, I read it, and the first thing I wanted to do was talk to you about it. You're a dad. Uh, wh- where, yeah. do, where do we begin? Well, it's, you know, I mean... All of what you said is, it's it's the young Rhea that that's the story, you know. And and there it is, like Valentine's Day, her birthday, with her dad. I mean, it should have been everything perfect, you know, for her. And I, I don't know one person that was involved in this, whether it's covering it or the police or on the street or anywhere I go, everywhere today, everywhere I went, people are hurting over this. Um. It's really, really touched, um, you know, not just Brampton, but I think the whole country. And um, and I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I, I've been doing this a long time, and, you know, they don't all get to the same way, but <laughs> this one did. Yeah. They, they, it really, really, really hurts because you're thinking Valentine's Day, little girl, and the way she's described, the way you describe her, the way you quote her teachers and people who knew this little girl, uh, she, she was just... Just a remarkable, wonderful, energetic, vibrant child. And when you're with your dad on your birthday, on Valentine's Day, it's all supposed to be, as you you just said and as you wrote, it's all supposed to turn out really, really well. And and it did did anything but. So there are questions being asked here that need answers. Yeah, they have to be asked. I mean, everybody's missing the point about the Amber Alert and, you know, the people that were idiots about, calling 911 about being bothered by by that. But that's not the question that needs to be asked. And when I ask these questions, it's not, not really to talk about this case because it's not going to fix it. But because, you know, because we have a responsibility to make sure that the next time, and hopefully there isn't one, but, you know, there likely will be, um, you know, things are done better and you've learned from what happened here. And first of all, Roy, the, the Amber Alert's way too late. Um you know, the, the young lady uh, disappeared at around 6.30 when the mother, or they knew about it at 6.30. Once the mother said that the father was threatening her and himself, to me, whatever the process is has to move a lot faster than it did. And I'm not blaming blame, but we have to talk about it. And there needs to be a review, not just of what Peel did, but the OPP, I think, who administers the Amber Alerts, and, and we need to find out what happened there. And then, in addition, outside of the Amber Alert, because the Amber Alert is has quite a rigorous process, as you know. I know you've been involved in a lot of these, and I've been on your show over many years about them. But there's also the local police service, what they did, and the decisions that were made about, you know, when they went to knock on the door of the, you know, the house and things like that. Um you know, who decided to not uh, enter force entry. Because later on in the evening, they did a force entry. And why did they do it, you know, in the 11 o'clock hour and not in the 6 o'clock hour? And I'm not saying it would have made any difference, but if we're doing our job in the media, then we have to ask this question. And those that uh, that don't want to have that answered, you know, unfortunately, um, that, you know, we, that we have to do it because it could be another child at risk and... Uh, and that's why uh, I've raised these things. And a lot of people are not just um, in around this story, but also on the 
police services and stuff are talking about this as well. What are the uh, what are the police saying? What are the if you talk to individual not, officers, what are they saying about that? Well, I think they're handling it pretty well. I mean, they're not saying that they're not going to you know, they're not discounting any of that. Uh, what I just said there, I asked the questions of Constable Danny Martini, who is the media spokesperson, and she she answered them and she said yes. And my question was to the acting uh, interim chief uh, Chris McCord, not because you know I'm trying to be difficult, just because I think that you know somebody has to ask him, and I'm I'm hoping that he will call for a review at some point. Maybe it's not the right day for it, but. You know, a full review uh, on on that part of it, you know, the uh, notification, missing child, all of that, just so that we can understand exact times, what happened, what did they know, what was said, what was the uh, potential record of the father, if there was one or there wasn't one, or, you know, past things that the mother may have known, what was her situation, and, and all of that. And so, not and it's not to lay blame, because that's not going to help, and I know the officers that were involved and all that. If an officer goes through a door, as you know, uh, he or she, it's not television. They can't just kick in the door and say to go in. They would have to get permission from somewhere and may have to go all the way up the line. Did somebody make that decision? Everybody can talk regulations all day long. Uh, but, you know, at some point, regulations are just, you know, it's like battle plans. They, you know, they're nice to have, but now you're in the real moment of war, and this is one of those times. And you know, I know that the police were in the seven o'clock hour at that door knocking on it, and I don't know if it would have made a difference. But you know, four hours later, they were knocking that door down. It would have been better had they done it four hours earlier. I think. Well, you know, as as I texted you, and and I can't remember exactly what I texted, but it was I, I feel that police have been um, challenged and second guessed yeah. so so often. That uh, and across the country, and not just in this country, that I think police um, services are more reluctant than they might have been a few years ago or a number of years ago to take proactive action because they're concerned about what the what the criticism well, level might be. If that's true, what you're describing right there now, then there definitely needs to be. You know, a review, and it may even need to be a national one. Well, what, what do you uh, think, Joe? Because well, I think you're right. I think that that's, that plays a role in it, and that's really scary. It is because scary. If you're thinking about if you're thinking about what someone's going to say about you or how you're going to be in trouble, when you know that the mother is saying that the father says he's going to hurt her, and she's not anywhere to be seen, I don't really care. I mean, I'll pay for the door myself. I know you will, Roy. Absolutely. Um, I mean, who cares? They can put the door back up. They don't actually knock it down anyway. They've got equipment to, to sort of break the lock. You get a locksmith over and fix it. Um, I don't care about the warrants. Uh, and all of this stuff, the people that are saying, well, they need a search warrant, they don't need any of that. All they need is that the child is in potential danger, and no one's going to do anything but praise an officer for it. And they need to be told that by the chief, and they need to be told that by... The, the top law people, whoever they are, I don't know anymore in, in Ottawa who they are, but in here in Ontario, um, you know. But somebody's got to, somebody in authority has to have the cops back and say, just, you, just you. In that situation, just go ahead and go in ahead and, and we got your back. Do what you need to do. Look, I don't want to drift too far off off, uh, off the main line here of our discussion, but I know there's there's a there's a term that uh, the police use. I've heard heard it from American cops. I, I haven't heard it from Canadian cops, but I, if Americans are saying it, maybe Canadians are as well. 
and that's FIDO. So in other words, they arrive on the scene of something going on, and they assess the situation, and, and I don't want to be unfair to police officers, but it was a cop who told me this, said that they'll look at the situation and they'll say, forget it, drive on. Now, if it's a, it's a, if it's a life-threatening situation, and I was told they don't do that, but if it's a situation where, where, where their involvement is going to essentially do nothing but complicate the cop's life, that there are police officers who will say that. Now, if that's true, there's a reason for it. And if that reason is, is sufficiently strong that it's affecting some police officers, you have to stop it now. You have to make that situation go away so the cops know that if I do the right thing, if I take action to, do, to, to save a child's life or do the right thing, like we said before, somebody will have my back. So I'm going to do what my training, what my instincts, what my, what, my, uh, what my brain tells me I need to do. Boy, I mean, you said it well. I, I, I mean, I just don't think that FIDO played a role in this. If it did, though, or in any case like Oh, I this, doubt it. I don't think so. Yeah, no, I, no, no, yeah, no, I don't think so. Sure. But, uh, but I, you know, FIDO is, um, i got to tell you what I think of FIDO. I, I've, you know, I've heard it my whole career, and I think it's one of those things that's talked about, but I don't think it ever happens. Even us, you know, in our jobs. You're getting, you know, kicked around by your boss at a particular time, and you think, "Well, I'm just gonna, you know, take it easy." And of course, you never do because you can't. Yeah. And this job, this job, if you take it easy for one second, you're not in this job anymore. Yours or police officers, and they really don't do that. They're all professionals. I know. I know it. It, it probably has happened somewhere. Um, but you I have to. But they, you have to make. You have to make that whole argument. That whole. Um, position uh, you have to no, make it go you. away cops have to feel the cops have to feel it's 11 o'clock at night i need to go into that or it's six o'clock in the evening i need to go through that door to see if i can save that child's life i think that it should have happened it's easy for me to say but i really do and many police officers have contacted me and agreed with my column today many said it yesterday when i was researching it i was at the scene and and all of the above it cannot be you know i know the officers that were working that night. I don't want them feeling bad because I know a number of them talked about this very thing. They wanted to do that, and, and I don't know whether they were told not to or what the procedures yeah. were. But we can't have it happen again, I'll tell you that. And if it ever, you know, and, and back to the Amber Alert, because it's also a very important part of this. You know, the Amber Alert, in my experience, we've run into this before. I mean, we talked about it. I was on your show a lot the Tory Stafford case, and, and, you know, again, that wasn't really dealt with all in the right way. Um, and it's easy to second-guess, but boy, oh boy, if it's not going well, and the people that are supposed to be handling it aren't doing the job, then these kids don't have a fighting chance. And in this case here, uh, Amber Alerts are, are basically, if they're going to put them off at 11.30 at night, uh, when a child has been missing since, you know, around the 5 o'clock hours, well, I understand. It's way, way too late. And, you know, you can talk about procedures and all the things they need to do and all the criteria that need to be met. And people are still upset about being woken up by it. I mean, I can't believe that people would be upset about it, but they seem to be. They were. Uh, most people aren't. Wake, wake us up anytime if, if it involves a child. I mean, I know many people that, heard that and also jumped in the cars and went out and looked on yeah. around their neighborhoods for the van. Yeah. So I anyway, think, I think Joe, I, I think some of them, I'm not excusing anybody because it's so fundamentally wrong, 
but and for so many reasons. But I think there are people who've maybe grown accustomed to the fact that after an Amber Alert, quite often you hear the child has been found and the child is okay. And so they think that that's sort of the normal outcome. You can't ever assume that. You must never assume that. And I, I'm so proud of the people that you describe who, uh, who went out looking for this girl. By the way, that was, uh, I had no intention of suggesting for a moment that the police officers involved in looking for this little girl had no, any kind of FIDO attitude. I was just saying that this – it concerns me if, if police officers anywhere feel that, that the authorities, their authorities, their immediate supervisory bodies, the governments, the politicians, if they feel they don't have their backs, it becomes exponentially difficult for a cop to protect society and protect a community. I'm going to tell you what I think the rules should be, and hopefully, hopefully this is adopted or something like this. Let's put a five-minute rule in. So you get five minutes upon hearing from the mother to make a decision to go into a house or a car or a cottage or an apartment building or whatever. And then outside of that, if you don't make it there, then you have to wait for the Amber Alert and go through the courts and all that. So that would open it up, uh, you know, maybe it's 10 minutes, you know what I mean, some, some little yeah. window yeah, I like that. that that they can make that decision. I mean, we can afford to fix the, the, the door. And I don't really care if, if the person complains. I don't think they would complain. I wouldn't complain. Would you? No. Uh, and so, you know what? And then the big thing is, I mean, would it have made a difference? Well, we don't know that. I mean, the, the postmortem was today. I think toxicology is still six weeks away. And, you know, we'll never know. And it's not going to matter. And we certainly don't want PTSD or any officers going into depression because we're asking these questions, and I don't know how. Well, that's not know. the intent. That's not your no, intent. It's not and, my intent. And, and the Joel, problem is that. Joe, let know. me take let me take a quick break. I'm speaking uh, with Joe Warmington, probably the Toronto Sun. His column today: Brampton Girl's life stolen on her 11th birthday, and it's the it's a tragic story. And Joe does such an amazing job of of, of recounting what's important for us to to think about and take away uh, both with our hearts and with our brains, little 11-year-old Rhea Rajkumar uh, lost her life and her father's at a charge of going to be with first-degree murder. Joe, I cut you off there because I had to take a break. Was, you, you, were, you, you were making a point. I apologize for cutting you off. I was Go. saying, but I think the, the bottom line is that, you know, the idea of Monday morning quarterbacking or second-guessing is not what we should be doing. But a review is not that. A review is to see exactly what did happen, and let's get the professionals in there inside of the Peel Police, and if they need outside help, to look at it just to make sure that for next time, uh, you know, because unfortunately there will probably be another time, and you can always learn from previous incidents or calls or investigations and things like that. Uh, What happened here as well is the, you know, the Amber Alert worked in terms of catching this guy because somebody noticed him. And I think that this is just my assumption is that the assumption was that she was in the van with him and they were looking for the van. So they had this in mind because they knew the, the van, the license. They went to the house. There was no one there. There was no van there. And so that was the focus, I think. And I'd like to know exactly for sure. And a review would tell us that. And I think what needs to happen is 
all kinds of ideas are thrown at you know at the the wall, if you will, so that all the people that are standing back and ready to point fingers, I mean, who cares about them anyway? I mean, you and I are always criticized for everything we do. It's not life or death. Um, Peel Police is arguably the best police force in the country. I mean, they they solve most of their crimes. I mean, they're all good, as you know, but they're really good in Peel. So they're taking this pretty hard, and mm-hmm. they're taking it hard because a lot of them are parents, and they, you know, it was it was the worst one of the worst days of my whole career. Yeah, That's thirty almost thirty five you know, years of doing this. You know, Joe, um, there have been some very positive developments that have come from inquiries and investigations into terrible situations uh, because the public did not accept nothing being done and uh, coroner's inquests and, as you say, inquiries have have actually generated changes in law which have been beneficial to everyone. My friend, I have to go, but thank you so much uh, for for, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for talking about it. I mean, we remember Rhea. He's done a nice job of of doing that. And, you know, her mom and her family, uh, our hearts go out to all of them. Thanks, Joe. All the best. You too. Joe Warmington. As you've been hearing, it's dubbed the United We Roll, official convoy for Canada, and it consists, I believe, of 100-plus trucks uh, making its way to Ottawa from Red Deer, and uh, it's scheduled to arrive next Tuesday, um, and we're talking to two of the organizers of the rally. They're uh, joining us now on the uh, on the program. Glenn Carrot was the convoy organizer. Mark Friesen from Saskatchewan assisted in putting this convoy together. Glenn, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. We're just pulling into Thunder Bay in about 10 minutes here, and we can't believe how excited people are to see us. They're making good time. Uh, yeah, not bad. We got away a little bit late today getting organized, but, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're rolling along. We're going to end up staying in Thunder Bay. There's been so much... So much support along the way. Dryden, we had hundreds of people there along the highway. And so, you know, we want to stop and make sure everybody gets a chance to sign the hood and, and uh, show the support. So we're a little behind, so we're going to stay in Thunder Bay tonight. All right, so community to community, you've got people turning out and they're supporting you. Unbelievable. Canadian flag, thank you. United, we roll. Just, you know, every every sign that just saying bring Canada together. Thanks for the pipe. Get the pipe in the ground. We love oil and gas. Just every every positive sign that we can see is fantastic. All right, Glenn, in your words then, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? We're doing it because we need to get our Canadian oil and gas sector back in gear. We need to get our pipelines in the ground, and we need to start using Canadian oil. Canadian oil has got such a bad rap, we'll change that. We've got some of the highest environmental standards in the world, and uh, we still continue to use oil from uh, foreign countries like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela at, at $50 million a day. And there's, there's no need for that. We've got our own viable product right here in Canada. We've got to get these, we got to get the pipelines to Tidewater and we've got to get the pipelines to the rest of Canada and start using our product. So, we, well, before I ask Mark a question, how many trucks are in the, did you start out with and how many do you have now? Yeah, so we came out of Red Deer with uh, 159 trucks. Uh, account from the RCMP out there who helped us out. And, uh, you know, not all of those trucks were ever planned to come all the way. We've got a good core of about, you know, 70 or 80. Uh, sorry, I'm going to apologize because you're going to have a little bit of a horn honk once in a while, but we'll keep it, keep it to a minimum. Uh, not a problem. Go on. <laughs> okay. hey, hey, got to do what you got to do. Oh, thank you. Okay, I appreciate that. So, you know, we ca- had that 159 come out of there. None of them really, not all of them planned to come all the way uh, to, to Ottawa. You know, it's the middle of February. So, but we got a good core of about 80. And then we've got... 
30, 30, or 50, 30 to 50 coming out of the east from, uh, you know, the Atlantic provinces and uh, Quebec. And then we've got probably another 80 or 90 trucks joining us uh, from Ontario. There's just, we can't believe the support in Ontario. It's just, you know, people are people are on board with what we're doing. I've been saying that on the air for quite some time, that people in the province of Ontario are very supportive of Western Canadians. Mark Friesen, what's your experience like as you're, as you're rolling along in the oh, convoy? Roy, I'm telling you, I'm, I, got, I got this big apple in my throat right now, and I've had it for about four hours. I've, I've dumped tears, uh, goosebumps on goosebumps. The, the, the support that we've got since we rolled into Ontario is, is overwhelming and the signs and and the flags and i mean i had ten thousand views on a live feed i just did a little while ago i'm seeing my country come together let me ask you guys do you uh, have any assurance from any political party from any of the leaders of any of the political parties or any substantial players within those political parties that they will be meeting with you in ottawa that they're going to be recognizing the fact that you're there it's going to be hard to ignore you uh any of them saying yeah we're going to come out and talk to you yeah, we yeah. heard actually ahead, that uh, she, uh, yeah, Shear is going to be there. Scott Moe from Saskatchewan will be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max Max mm-hmm. Bernier is going to be there. Um, I think Doug Ford has already done a video expressing his support. I'm not sure if he's going to make it. Uh, Glenn probably has a couple other names maybe that he knows of that I don't. Yeah, we've got you know we've got a few MPs coming out uh, out to support. You know what we got to say is this this rally is about uh, you know the not being happy with the current federal government we're not we're not telling anybody how to vote we just want to make sure that they're they're aware of what's going on and that we need oil and gas in the ground and hopefully you know the decisions go the right way but we do have some huge support uh and and people are starting to reach out to us scott um doug ford's actually going to come and meet us in arm prairie he can't make it to parliament hill but he's going to come out there where the trucks are going to meet on the on the 18th so that's fantastic and as mark said there he sent out a tweet, with, and you know, it just he just goes to show that we're we're getting heard. And I'm sure of you both and everybody who's in that convoy with you, the 80 or so trucks that are committed to carry on, truckers who are committed to carry on through to Ottawa, and you'll be joining. I have others join you along the way. You'd much rather be working, using your trucks for working. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. I'll let you take that one. Yeah. No. I mean, absolutely. You know, it, and I here's the thing, Roy. I mean, we got a core of you know. 80 trucks in this convoy that have been with us from the start and will go all the way to Ottawa and we're adding along the way, but it would be so much bigger. But here's the thing. We have people that need mm-hmm. work, barely getting by. They can't leave their work. Or we have people that don't have work and they're losing their homes that, of course, they can't spend the, the funds to, to go on a convoy to Ottawa. So the core that is here, we are representing those people. And I just want to say one other thing, Roy. When, when Glenn talks about pipelines and energy and and, and all of these other issues, we, if we focus on the root of the problem, we're going to fix those issues. We're going to get people back to work. We're going to get pipelines in the ground. We're going to have an energy industry that's vibrant. I am. The best right industry here. on the planet. And that's what we need to do. And we need to focus on where it's coming from. And that where it's coming is from is from the U.N. and the right. agenda on sustainable development. You know it. We've had this discussion before, Roy. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Glenn Carrot, Mark Friesen. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Find out where you are and how the last 24 hours will have gone. Or the next 24 hours. Thank you very much. Thanks, Roy. Greatly appreciate your coverage, my friend. All the best to you. Yeah, we'll be we'll be talking to you again. United We Roll is the name of the convoy. It's the official convoy for Canada. That's how it's dubbed. And have, as you heard, about 80, a core of 80 trucks. That's a, that's a, that's a lot of big trucks. 
Uh, if they're all pulling into gas stations together, it's uh, uh, it's going to be a busy time. But their message is very simply and very clearly, we need to get the energy sector up and moving again. We need to get the energy sector productive the way it was and not throw hurdles and obstacles in the way of Canadian energy making it to, making its way to international markets. How many times have we talked about the fact that uh, the uh, Frank McKenna, the former premier of New Brunswick on this program, the vice chair of the of uh, TD Bank telling us that over a seven-year period, $107 billion were lost to the Canadian economy simply because of the discount at which we sell Canadian oil to our only customers, the Americans. And then we buy back 800,000, or we buy 800,000 barrels of oil a day so that the eastern Canadian refineries can be busy. And the suspicion is that we buy back a lot of the oil from the United States. Or we know that we buy a lot of oil from the United States. The suspicion is it could be very well our oil that we're buying back. So we sell it at a discount and we buy it back at a premium. And the premier of Quebec has said he doesn't want dirty Alberta energy in his province. Well, remember that Leger Polling uh, told us, um, or at least Leger Polling did polled Quebecers, and the executive director of the Montreal Economic Institute, which commissioned the poll, told us that 66% of Quebecers favor Alberta oil and uh, pipelines are by far and away the preferred option for Quebecers over trucks or rail. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.